Think about the last time you bought a motorcycle jacket. You probably shopped around for a jacket you thought you would look good in and that suited your riding style. And then very likely you put a, a fair bit of thought and research into that purchase. You may have checked online for reviews, maybe the opinions of some riders that wear the jacket already. You considered their experiences. And then you plunked down your hard-earned money and walked away with your new jacket. What you expected from that jacket, the most important feature, what we all expect from the jacket, is protection. Protection if you came off the bike and slid down the road, as well as some kind of protection from the elements, keeping you warm, dry, and maybe cool. The jacket is all about protection. Sure, it has to look good, but really, ultimately, it's protection. So, when you've yanked all those retail tags off and you tried your new jacket on to see how it looks and feels, did you consider what you're supposed to wear under the jacket. We have so many choices as to what to wear underneath. It could be a long sleeve shirt, a short sleeve shirt, a t-shirt. It could be a thick material. It could be numerous layers, a shirt and a sweater, because it would make sense that more layers would add more protection. Then shouldn't those layers have an effect, uh, or at least an overall effect, on the protection you get from the jacket? And when the manufacturer made that jacket, the one that you put on to protect you, what did they imagine you were going to be wearing underneath that jacket? Did they picture you in a t-shirt? Did they picture you with two layers? Did they picture you wearing some sort of heavy duty work shirt underneath? What's the bare minimum you should wear under your jacket and your pants for that matter? Well, today we've got some industry professionals that are going to answer those questions and more. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. I'm Sam Manikin. Ted Simon. Austin Vince. Simon Pavey. Brian Field. Helga Pedersen. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Borman. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Grant Johnson. Jimmy Lewis. Elspeth Jim Jansen. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA. Comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters. Cyclepump.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com Okay, so you're an AtGat rider. AtGat. A-T-G-A-T-T, which means, of course, all the gear all the time. A-T-G-A-T-T. It's the best way to ensure that you have the maximum protection because you never know when something could go wrong, which means that no matter how warm it gets out while you're riding, you're still wearing your jacket, pants, and boots because it gives you full protection. But what about the mid-layers? What about those mid-layers you removed as the day got hotter? Does removing those mid-layers take away some of your protection? Let me explain a little more here. Here's an example. When you purchase a helmet, it comes as one unit together. The outer shell, then the EPS foam layer, and finally the liner inside that goes against your head. It has all the components built in and ready to go in one package. There's no question here. Provided you do the chin strap up, you should enjoy the maximum protection that helmet has to offer right off the shelf. But when you purchase a riding jacket and pants... You know it's the outer layer. It's understood that you're going to be wearing something underneath. But what? How many layers should you be wearing? And what should those layers be made of? Should there be an added layer of abrasion-resistant material as part of those inner layers? So what I'm saying here is, when the manufacturer made your jacket and pants, what did they design them to be worn with underneath? 
what did they expect you were going to be wearing underneath those outer layers? And those added layers, are they part of your safety margin? The helmet, it's designed to be worn by itself. Sure, you, you might put a thin insulated layer in if you rode in the real cold weather, but essentially it's a standalone piece of safety gear. But do you know for sure what's the bare minimum to be worn underneath those outer layers? You could wear jeans, light hiking pants, shorts. Can you wear shorts when it gets hot? Well, coming up, we've got some industry professionals that's going to help us dig through these questions and get some definitive answers. The first one is Tim Calhoun. Tim is a power sports industry expert with over 30 years experience. We've had him on the show before. He's done many things in the industry, including having his own distribution warehouse for a number of years. He is the director of parts and accessories at the MIC, which is the Motorcycle Industry Council. So, okay, so let's let's jump into layering. Um, what is, maybe just a, a, from a real basic outlook, what is layering? And why is it important? I think in my conversations with both designers and some of the large manufacturers out there kind of doing some research for our conversation, uh, Paula Baccarelli over at Revit probably put it best. He goes, when we design, we like to design like an onion. We peel away the layers, right? Mm-hmm. And that's really what's going on with a lot of design today. And I think the better companies are building the base layer to go with the mid layer to go with the jacket, you know, or multiple jackets, but they're doing a better overall think on the product line, the entire collection and how these different pieces work together than they used to. In the beginning, when a lot of base layers showed up, they were pretty purposeful. For racing, you had a base layer that had compression and helped cool you down. On the road, maybe it had some butt padding and other things in it for comfort. Um, But I think, you know, a lot of that came across from the outdoor industry as these different areas in outdoors began to add base layers for adjustability from a cold morning to a warm afternoon to a cool evening. So that kind of came over naturally, but it's become more specialized now. And the better companies, I think, are putting more and more focus everywhere from better cooling and to mid layers, better warming to lighter weight, and now some focus on abrasion resistance and impact resistance. So you just mentioned, though, about, about layering coming from the outdoor sector, sector where you start out in the morning, it's cold and with all your layers on. And then as the day warms up, you can peel off a couple of layers, maybe leave your outer layer on, but you take that off first. You take off a layer and then throw your outer layer back on and off you go. Um, but now we've sort of got it down to, to how many layers? Like, what, what is there? A couple of layers underneath your jacket? Typically, you have, okay, if, if you wear full layers, you have typically three. You have a base, you have a mid, you have your outer protective layer. Okay. okay. So the outer protective layer, that's our jackets. That that has our, our abrasion resistance and impact, some impact resistance in, in, in crucial areas. That's the outer layer. And of course, that protects us from weather as well. Correct. Okay. So Absolutely. Yeah. So that that's the outer layer. So as we go down though, so basically what we're talking about is a mid and a base layer. So can you sort of walk through that and talk about what the mid layer is there for, what it's supposed to do, and, and the base layer? So typically the mid layer is more about staying warm and comfy than, than anything. Um, that's what it's been for a long time. I, don't see, I haven't seen that change a whole lot. The only other thing I'd say is there are some companies that are building mids to have, say, a matching panel. So if that outer jacket, say, is a three-quarter jacket, and the front pockets um, zip open and roll back to open them up for ventilation. Uh, 
they are taking some of that into account now on mid layers more so than they used to so that you can, you know, you have another higher degree of adjustability by doing that. Right. Mm, so okay. you can cool more. Um, I think the thing that's come into play on mid layers in recent years though, is it's also really become a fashion statement as well. So there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of fashion look put into mid layers, I would say simply because, um, a lot of times you'll show up, you know, you go on a morning ride, show up for breakfast, take off the big jacket, you walk into the restaurant, you've got your great looking Dainese piece or Alpine Star piece or whatever brand you love of this mid layer that's very stylish, you know, like a lightweight shell. And I think that's become more and more popular from the design standpoint is to design a mid layer that actually you can wear around anytime. And it's not that rare to go to a motorcycle shop and see somebody walking in the door just wearing a mid layer, you know, with jeans they just drove up. So. So it's not something I would have thought of at all was, was style. And I guess that's just a, a personal preference with it. But so then the two things, basically the, the most functional uh, part of it is insulation. That's where warmth is, is in that mid layer. And then there's the extra part, which may be quite important to some people. And I mean, you know, that's all personal choice is the, the look of it. Absolutely. And there could be some wind resistance or flexibility opening, you know, some open panels you can put in there to open to get wind through. But for the most part, most mid layers are about warmth and comfy and, you know, that's what they're about. Now, the other thing I know from, from the outdoor industry, and I, and I certainly recognize it with riding motorcycles as well, is that when you have multiple layers, you has, have less chance of, of having drafts. If you just wear one big coat, for instance, you know, in the outdoors and, and the wind is blowing, you can often feel drafts, you know, your, your, especially your lower back may get cold or at least just pick up that, that little hint of air coming in. Whereas the more layers you wear, the less chance you have of that because the, the way the layers overlap. I mean, that, that certainly has to have some sort of, um, importance to us as motorcyclists then yeah that and you create a little bit of airspace between where you can create some warmer pockets that retain heat better etc cetera, etc cetera. so um absolutely i mean i i don't know of any jacket i've worn that doesn't have some area that you feel wind coming through at some point right right so 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 mid layers then what sort of materials are in mid layers uh, typically you're going to find uh, essentially some nylons and polyesters. There may be a thin layer of like a thin slate, a real lightweight uh, insulation material. Um, and oftentimes in, in newer ones, um, you'll have some lycra for some stretch or, or more comfort of movement, right? So they, they're more body fitting or body hugging than they probably used to be. They're not, you know, they're just a little more athletic. Mm-hmm. Is, is it the material itself, the, these nylons and polyesters that are actually doing the insulation or are they just trapping air in there? It just depends on, honestly, the manufacturer. Some go to great lengths to use better materials. Others will use a cheaper material with a fensilate to stuff it to make it warmer. Um, but again, that's typically not as comfortable. I think that that shell you see oftentimes at sports stores now is really what they're aiming for more is a really flexible, comfortable shell that has warming properties and, and is very durable. When it comes to mid layers, I know for, for outdoors activities, I'll use a lot of the same, um, things that I use for outdoors activities for, for motorcycling, but what sort of, if I was shopping for mid layers right now, what sort of design features would be specific to a motorcycle design mid layer? Cause you were mentioning more, more manufacturers now are, are designing mid layers, whereas before they may have not. 
So with that, what kind of things are they doing? You did mention ventilation there, but what other kinds of things would I benefit from, from a, say a motorcycle mid-layer as opposed to just an average outdoor mid-layer? Um, I think, again, we've talked, you and I have talked quite a bit at times about how everything to some degree is a bit of a compromise, yeah, you know, sure. and trying to find the best situation. So, you know, you have in some situations, you have a mid-layer that really specializes in wind resistance, right? In blocking out the wind. Other times you have ones that are more thermal. Um, you have ones that include merino wool for even colder environments, right? Mm-hmm. So really it comes down to what is your need for this this mid layer are you in a very cold environment are you in a very windy environment are you in a very wet environment do you need something that's going to be high highly water resistant as well to go underneath your jacket so a lot of it comes down to what kind of riding are you going to do and there there are mid layers that do all those things right they're warm they're wind resistant they're water resistant etc so it kind of comes down to what your need is i don't know that there's any one perfect one in, in all reality jim you want to find something that's you know, the best of all worlds, if possible, or more specialized to the environment you're going to be in. Well, let I, me, I wish I had a better answer. No, no. Really well, let true. me put it a different way. What, um, other than the looks of, of having a branded mid-layer or something like that. So when I take my jacket off, I feel more comfortable with what I'm wearing. I, I feel better about what I'm wearing. Other than that, what other design characteristics would I be missing on though? Or, or are there any at all? I mean, that I would be missing out on that are motorcycle uh, focused or motorcycle designed mid layers. Can, can you think of anything like that? Um, I think there is a, there is a real focus on windproof water resistant. I think there's a real focus on the ability to pack that mid layer down to a very small size, like a baseball softball type size, just because they know adventure is growing and there's a real focus on being able to pack a lot in a small space. I think you're going to see better quality zippers for the most part, uh, pretty much all YKK type stuff on these, on these jackets versus some other company, you know, an outdoor not as focused on the strength or, or the, the uh, pull strength of a zipper. Um, a lot of times you'll see a cinch on on these mid layers at the at the hems, either the cuff and the bottom or the bottom where you can pull it down tight so you don't get as much air coming up through it. Um, you tend to see pockets inside, smaller pockets for a wallet, for what have you. Some of the newer stuff is starting to incorporate uh cuffs that have thumb holes in them so you make sure that that when you pull your jacket over the top it doesn't pull the sleeve up it's not a pain in the butt to pull that sleeve back down so i think there is um, some motorcycle details being put into it for specifically for riding for sure Hmm. okay well well, how about base layers then what is the base layer there for what do we do what are we expecting from it I think they started out as primarily uh, wicking sweat and cooling riders down. I think, I mean, the first base layers I remember seeing really were in the racing world to go underneath leather suits because there really wasn't much of anything to wear under them. So typically these incorporated something like a yoga pant or a running pant that had Lycra and was tight fitting and had some compression. And there wasn't a lot of, of, of uh, abrasion resistance really thought about. Um, now we're beginning to see these base layers incorporate some thin padding for higher levels of impact resistance. We're seeing some brands add uh, some Kevlar or some aramid fibers on the outside in the impact areas like hips and butt and knees. This will obviously offer a little bit higher abrasion resistance, especially if you're a rider that, say, is riding in a riding jean 
or in a lighter weight nylon pant, um, you know, or a mesh type pant, it'll give you another layer of abrasion resistance. So I, there's definitely an evolution of what is going on in base layers. Um, there's been materials added into them, bamboo materials. Um, there's been jade put into different stuff, uh, especially race suit liners. It helps wick sweat off faster. Jade? And you said jade? Sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, jade. Well, what, that's, that's rock. They're grinding yes. that up and using the, some sort of property in jade that helps wick away moisture. Uh, and, I, you know, I can't speak to the process, but for sure they've been doing this and adding it into the material. It supposedly wicks faster, evaporates faster by incorporating that. Jeez. So there's definitely uh, there's definitely some stuff being done out there. And bamboo is probably one of the more interesting one that's been coming into play lately because it has a lot of great properties. So to be a little more technical within, uh, with this then, as far as the base layers go, what kind of things should an average rider be considering at least? Like what kind of padding, what kind of protection on the base layer? Um. You know, I think some things you want to look for, if, if you can find it, you want to look for some stuff that's like antimicrobial. That way you can wear it for multiple days without any problems of, you know, stuff growing in it. And you want to look at what type of blends of materials, nylons, merinos, um, stuff like that, depending on the temperature you're going to ride in. So that's partly just for durability. Uh, tighter weaves, heavier knits are going to be more durable over a longer time frame. Um, you want to look for, uh, if, if you prefer more padding, typically hip pads, uh, a tailbone type pad, potentially some knee type pads and thigh type pads. Those are the impact areas. And, and you're going to wear those with padding underneath your, your outerwear with padding as well. Yeah. And in some cases, like if you're wearing an outer pant, you may or may not have a knee pad in that. Some do, you know, most offer them, not everybody wears them. Um, some people will wear that impact or they see me that base layer that has some, some, uh, lightweight padding in it that helps disperse energy when you impact, as opposed to putting on kind of an awkward knee pad. So. Mm-hmm. You've, uh, you mentioned one time about, uh, about wearing jeans because you, you like to wear motorcycle specific jeans. Can you, can you talk about the jeans that they're available now? Yeah, I think. You know, especially when it comes to buying jeans, the most important thing is simply just find jeans that are going to fit you. Um, there's some jeans out there that are very European. By that, I mean, you know, very, uh, very tight, thin-legged, small. Um, there's, there's, a, there's no lack of a ton of riding jeans out there. For the most part, pretty good materials. But the evolution has been from these Kevlar aramid fiber-lined jeans to now blue jeans that are incorporating that material that is woven into the outer blue jean material. These tend to breathe better, be more comfortable, and have some crazy abrasion uh, resistance compared to what was just a few years ago. Um, I think I mentioned you in passing that I think um, Bullets, in my opinion, as a brand, seems to be doing the best overall job with jeans as far as variety of fit, fitting more people in more jeans. Um, for women, they also build leggings that offer a high abrasion resistant, and this is probably one of their best-selling item. Uh, just because women, it's much tougher to fit women in jeans properly than it is men typically, and and for the most part, just because they don't design as many varieties for women, and so women have turned to other items uh, that work equally well as far as abrasion resistance. But I know Climb, I believe, has. I think their lower quality jean 
has an abrasion resistance. I think, and, and don't quote me on this, but it's off the top of my head. I think it's 60 miles an hour. It's like five and a half seconds, roughly. You can slide. And the top level gene, I think it's 70 miles an hour is like seven seconds, eight seconds. You can find it online, but their abrasion resistance is extremely high. Um, it's, it's a really well-made product and it's a really, you know, worthy of an investment by a rider to have the comfort and have that level of protection in a gene. Can you put that into perspective a little bit? Like, do you, do you have any idea? And I know this is all, this is a tough question to answer. I know because there's so many variables here, but is five seconds a long time to slide? Five seconds is a really long time to slide. <laughs> I mean, that's going down on a racetrack and sliding off the track into the gravel. And, you know, when you look at these like MotoGP get-offs, you know, three, four seconds at a buck 50, buck 80 type stuff. And and sometimes if the surface is wet or they hit a lawn or whatever, it could go longer. But on a road environment of pavement, I've crashed my fair share of my life, I can't imagine I've ever slid more than two or three seconds at oh, most. Wow. So yeah. then if you, if you, sorry, go ahead. <clears throat> no, no, that was it. It was just, it's usually slides are pretty, pretty short. Um, you know, and the ability for that material, whatever it is to withstand that initial impact is the other important part that it doesn't come apart at the seams or it doesn't tear right away. And that's what people don't, most people don't realize is while blue jean is a pretty tough material where it really tends to fall apart is when you first hit the ground, it can rip them and shred them right off you immediately. And that's where these reinforced jeans come in uh, really strong as they don't, they don't just shred on impact. Is, is that because of stitching? Is that what you're saying? Um, some of it's stitching, but some of it's just, the road will grab you depending on the surface of the road. And it's, you know, you hit the ground. I mean, I've bent down in my driveway to work on a car or a bike and put my knee on the ground a couple of times. You look down and you've worn a spot on your blue jeans. They're not yeah. designed for abrasion and they're you know designed to wear comfortably and have some degree of abrasion resistance, but they're really, they're not designed with the same purpose in mind as a proper riding jean. I don't even know that you could call them jeans anymore. They really are a full riding pant that looks like a blue jean, right? Mm -hmm. So CE rating. Now that's something that we see showing up on some clothing. What is it first? Um, CE is the European rating system for level of protection of goods. And your better companies out there typically take their garments through CE testing as well as their armor is CE rated level one, level two, um, for the level of impact, uh, uh, absorption it has. Can you talk about the different levels then maybe starting at the highest level, the AAA? Sure. AAA is going to be typically purpose-built product. It's going to be race suits or super heavy-duty jackets, um, typically leather more so than textile. Um, it's going to offer you the highest degree of protection at the most extreme speeds okay, or extreme risk levels. Mm -hmm. And then from there, you'll go to an AA rating. And now you're getting into more of the higher-end street garments. Basically, they have more flexibility. They're more rideable on a daily basis. Um, they still offer a very high level of protection, but they cover a broader range of riding from street to adventure to, you know, single track to whatever. So a little bit broader, not just track use type product. And then probably the most common for a better garment is going to be like a class A. That's going to be like your ready to work everyday jacket that has a high level of protection, uh, but also it's a little bit lighter weight, more comfortable to wear on a daily basis. Just, just 
you know, not as purpose built a product. And then below that, Jim, you come in with a class B. Now, as far as abrasion resistant, class A and class B are the same, but you don't typically have armor in class B's or impact protectors built into these garments like you do on class A and up. So it may not have as thick of materials in certain impact areas. Um, jeans with protection typically will fall into like a class B if they have like an armor, knee armor, or hip armor in them as well. And then the least uh, protective is Class C, but that's typically something you'll see on a base layer. Uh, you'll see it on uh, maybe a mid layer. Uh, you may see it on these thinner weight materials that go underneath with uh, some impact protectors, et cetera. But they're typically not as often. I don't think you're going to see C on an external garment as much as you are on an internal garment. So now on top of the CE rating for the jacket, there's ratings for the armor that's inside the jacket for level one and level two. Can you talk about those ratings and what they mean? So typically you have level one armor, level two, or non-rated. Your better quality garments are going to use at minimum a level one. Uh, the more expensive ones, a level two for a higher garment or excuse me for a higher resistance rating uh, especially on impact in your high impact areas elbows shoulders uh, back protector hip protectors okay mm-hmm. um with that said the way they're rated and i don't have the specific kinetic newton rating they use for level one and level two in front of me i think it's like 18 kn for level one and and has to it has to lower the force below 18 kn and can exceed 24 in any given area. Level two, I think, is 9KN and uh, should not exceed 12KN. And, and don't ask me what KN is. I just remember those numbers in my head. So um, basically, level one is going to manage energy at a pretty good, pretty moderate rate. Level two is going to uh, manage a much higher level of energy than level one does. So it's a better armor overall. Okay. So for uh, for street riding, for instance... Yes. You've only, you're really looking at the two levels that you're going to look at as far as um, your serious impact zones. What What is suitable for street riding? Level one, realistically. Level one typically is used for street riding. Um, level one, they'll let you do typically a track day in level one armor. Um, if you're racing, they're going to want to see probably level two. Higher speed track schools are probably going to want level two. Um, it's it's the most protective. So for street riding, the minimum I would have in a garment is level one. If I buy a garment that doesn't have level one, just has foam armor, I typically am buying a level one or level two armor kit to put into that. How common is it in your experience to find non-rated um, armor? It's everywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, when you reach in there, if you're filling a foam, you can squish between your fingers and it doesn't slow down at all when you begin to compress it. It's typically just foam. And that's why you want to look for that level of armor. That foam isn't going to do a whole lot for you. So level one is the minimum. Level two is the uh, the highest. And then there's non-rated. Yeah. Okay. So this is interesting, this whole grading system, because that's a lot of levels of, of CE yeah. rating. And if you think about a car, when you go buy a car, do they say to you, what seatbelt are you after? You know, do you want a level one or a level two? And, and there are other seatbelts. Like, I mean, look at racing, right? With your four-point yeah. harness. There's other kinds of seatbelts. But with, with, with cars, you just get the one. I mean, obviously, it's, it's not a real direct comparison. But so it's interesting. And what it does, it really puts a burden on the rider to understand these things before you go out and buy. These are things that if you don't understand, well, you may find you 
yourself less protected than what you think you are. I think a lot of people will buy gear that's a name brand and just figure because it's a name brand, it is protection. It is adequate protection for them. But in fact, you've really got to look at what you're doing, how you're going to ride, and then sort of consider what level I guess you're willing to spend because this level C is the cheapest and level AAA is the most expensive. So it's one of the things that's going to um, help you discern from one jacket to another, even if you're even if you're looking at price. But not all jackets are CE rated, are they? No, and and that's the thing is 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 at the end of the day, if a manufacturer has taken the time to CE rate their garments, um, what can happen with that garment is it can be pulled and batch tested from the manufacturer's floor at any time. So they're essentially giving you a handshake guarantee, saying. We tested it, you know, for abrasion. We tested it for impact. And by the way, it can be retested at any time by CE. And so we're just saying this is our way of saying to you we're building a really safe garment. Is there something that you would advise for people, for instance, riding adventure motorcycles, some level that you would say to look at? Yeah, I mean, if you're riding adventure and you're seriously doing single track and not just on highway, um, then you're going to want to look for like a level two in the armor, a better armor, just because you have jagged rocks and jagged things you ride over. And when you hit, it can hurt, right? Mm -hmm. You're going to look for the same thing on a garment, probably a double A or a, uh, at least an A or a double A rating on that garment um, for better impact uh, abrasion resistance if you hit. So just because you are, you know, you are riding more seriously, you are riding in, in varied terrain um, that can change. And you're also traveling at highway speeds of 70, 80, 90 miles an hour. So you really need to cover all those bases. I was speaking with Tim Calhoun from his office in Houston, Texas. So with that mid-layer being the warmth layer, insulation, there's another method to keeping warm that has some serious advantages, and that's heated gear. With heated gear, you can get by with sort of less bulk under your jacket and pants, unlike thermal layers that reflect your body heat, The heated gear uses battery power to generate heat that is radiated into your body, which obviously can feel really nice and does when the temperature drops. But if you have a jacket that's tight or or pants that are tight and you can't get enough thermal layers under there, that's one of the times that you definitely want to look at heated gear. Other advantages with heated gear is that it's usually lightweight garments. They're they're made into fairly lightweight, thin things that can be rolled up and stored in a small space for those times when you need it. So, you know, if you start at lower elevations in warm air, ride to cooler, higher elevations later on, you can simply just stop, put on your heated jacket or pants underneath your outer gear, and then suddenly you're cozy warm. So to talk about this, Joe Parr is another power sports industry expert. He's currently the national sales manager at LS2 Helmets. And Joe is one of the top experts on heated gear, having spent years working in the field. Joe, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you. Glad to be here. So um, you're a motorcyclist. Oh, yeah. I've been riding motorcycles um, since I crashed my mini bike way back when and should have stopped me from doing it, but it never did. Is that a prerequisite for riding the bike? I mean, you had to get to the point where you crashed the mini bike before you, uh, were you, you were advanced to the motorcycle? 
Well, I think so. You have to find where your wear indicators are and then back off a click, right? Oh, <laughs> that's a good, that's a good testing method, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Even if you're at eight years old, your throttle cables break and your dad thinks you're doing great and you're like screaming for help, you know? Is your dad or, or was your dad a rider at that time? You bet. That's how I got started riding and tinkering with, you know, motorcycles in his garage and, and, uh, you know, my passion started way early on. Oh, so it, 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 that was a sort of a, I, I, I want to say easy segue into motorcycling in a way, because you're sort of ushered in by your dad, uh, unlike some people who will have the parents who don't want the kids to ride a bike. Yes, absolutely. I was, uh, it was kind of a given that I would ride and, um, you know, the, you know, the riding on the back with my dad and then, you know, starting on my own and, uh. Yeah. You know, I grew up in, in, uh, in Oregon and, uh, you know, we, of course it rained a lot. There's no, that, that old tale that it rains a lot is true. And, um, you know, it didn't stop us from riding and it should have, there was probably lots of other things we could do that were indoor, but, uh, <laughs> but we went out and weathered the storm and, and, uh, you know, and, and had a lot of fun. There's no doubt about it. Growing up in motorcycles was a, was a childhood. I wouldn't change for anything. What kind of riding have you done since then? Uh, you know, I'm not as big of an off-road rider as uh, a lot of people might be. I'm more of a street rider and always have been. God, that's really weird because you just described that was your your start was off-road, especially in all the rain. Yes, yes, absolutely. We rode a lot of mini bikes and dirt bikes because we weren't legal to ride on the street yet. And then once I rode on the street for the first time, I said, oh no, this is it. Mm-hmm. I can go faster. The road's smooth. Might be a little slick, but it's not as slick as that dirt is. <laughs> and uh and, uh, you bet. No, it was, it was a love for me and, and street bike riding immediately. How did you get to working in the motorcycle industry? Uh, you know, it's a funny thing. I had always ridden and I was working at a wood stove shop selling wood stoves. I've always been in sales, but, um, you know, it was a funny thing. There's no passion for selling wood stoves, but you know, needed a job. And I saw an ad for a motorcycle salesman at the same town. I was 18 years old. And uh, I went down and applied. And uh, ma'am, the minute that I was there in the interview, I just, you know, knew, especially once I got hired, that that's what I was going to do the rest of my life. And I've never gotten out. I've done it since I was 18 and I'm in my mid 50s now. How did you get experience in heated gear? You know, uh, being a rider, number one, but also in my career, I've, I have worked on the development, the manufacturing and the distribution side in apparel. So I started working with motorcycle apparel to start with, um, you know, back in the day, going back, textiles and motorcycle apparel didn't really exist. It was more like if you rode in the rain in Oregon, you rode, you wore leather and you put a rain suit over top of it. That's how you got protected and you stayed dry. So I worked in a lot in textiles to begin with. How do you stay waterproof, breathable, and also dry with, without having to wear, you know, uh, you know, rain suit over top of your leathers. So my career in apparel kind of started there and then it migrated into how do we stay safer? Because when it's cold, what do we do when it's cold? We can only wear, you know, bigger gloves. Um, you know, eventually they get wet. You can only, you know, you can only stay warm up to a point. And I started working on the manufacturing side overseas a lot on um, wearables and not only plug into the motorcycle, but, um, you know, what we, you know, your rechargeable battery technology um, for shorter distance stuff. and um, I stayed in that for quite some time and, um, you know, and it's something I wholeheartedly believe in for a lot of reasons. I mean, the number one reason I believe in heated gear is for safety. If you're cold and your hands get cold and they don't operate correctly, you don't operate your controls right. You can't brake properly. You can't pull the clutch in. 
you might, you know, accidentally whisk a gasket, you know, uh, something of that nature. Um, if you're cold and if you're warm and you're comfortable and you can operate your controls better, it's as if you're sitting out in a 70 degree environment. It's mm-hmm. awesome. Uh, there's nothing like it. Um, so really number one for me, you know, my quest in anything that I built, um, in apparel or, or development of apparel is safety. It always comes down to that. Number one, build the safest thing you can first. And then, you know, let's put the comfort behind it. And, um, for me, I always find heated gear as number one, a safety, a safety element, you know? So why, why heated instead of just insulated? So in other words, why not just more insulation and then you don't have to mess with the cord and worrying about power and all of that other stuff? Well, you know, there's a couple of reasons. Um, it's not that insulation doesn't work. The number one thing that insulation does is it adds bulk. Bulk, as we all know, correlates to not as comfortable. Do you want to be the Michelin man on your motorcycle? Or do you want to feel like you would if you had a set of leathers on? So number one thing about insulation, it's not that it doesn't work. You generally have to put a lot to get it to the right point. And then everybody's threshold of of heat is different of what they need. So first thing I would say is bulk. Insulation adds bulk. Second thing is, you know, you can control your temperature with a uh, motorcycle heated garment. So if you're starting to run a little hot with the insulation, the only thing you can do is start to unzip your jacket a little bit, uh, which might let some more air come in. You know, you can equivalent the same thing in heated gear being less bulky by far and just turning down the heat to get the proper level which is what a lot of people do. They start at a little higher temperature to get their body where it needs to be. And then they kind of adjust as they ride and adjusting a temperature on the fly is kind of like adjusting the thermostat in your house. It's great. What about if heated gear fails? Because, because there is that concern that if you were not so much for motorcycling, because we don't get to those extreme temperatures, but if you were in an extremely cold environment, I think many people would, would choose not to use heated gear because of the, if it fails or they run out of power. Well, heated gear today, failure rate's pretty slim, to be honest. Um, there are some great companies that have been doing it for since mid-70s. Those are the kind of guys I like to really lean on. Um, you know, there's companies put lifetime warranties on their panels and different sort because they are that confident in their product. Uh, if a failure occurs, you're at plan B, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is there a piece that you can get quickly from a motorcycle dealer? Because there's a lot of dealers that do stock heated gear more than ever did to repair yourself, to get going again, that would be my first choice. Second would be, boy, if I can't, then I got to break out some do it the old fashioned way, right? Which is insulation layers, whatever you can come up with. But it, it's pretty reliable. You know, the plug-in, the plug-in connection to the gear now comes directly off your 12 volt battery. So unless you're having a problem with your battery, generally that's the biggest failures that happen with heated gear is improper installation or a battery that was you know, on its way out or not up to snuff to begin with. Or the bike isn't putting out enough power if you end up overdoing it. And we, and we can talk about that. Let, let's start off by by talking about the gear itself, the heated gear. So are, are there types of heated gear or, or is it all one kind now? No, there's, um, I like to put it in two different classes, Jim. Um, the most consistent heat that you will get if you're on a tour and you're going to be exposed to colder tempers for long distance, you're going to want to use um, the first class of gear that I classify as a plug into the motorcycle. That's going off your 12 volt battery. And what that will do is allow you to have a consistent source of power and allow the panels to be quite a bit larger 
because it is working off a 12 volt system or off your motorcycle battery. Um, and that's what you would use if you were going on more of a tour long distance because you don't want uninterrupted power. If you're a commuter, if you're somebody that, you know, you want to stay warm on chilly mornings, but you're not doing a tour, um, you know, you also do other things like go to the ball game, you know, um, your kid's ball game, you do, you know, other activities, you know, um, go to a football game, walk your dog, whatever. Then there's a new segment or new class that came aboard about 10 years ago that's really gained a lot of steam. And that's your lifestyle or your wearable technology. And what that is, is um, the panels are a little bit smaller, but they use a rechargeable lithium ion battery that sits in a pocket or somewhere positioned into the gear. And that is rechargeable like a cell phone. It's actually good for over 500 cycles. So what's cool about that is it gives you more uh, versatility, more range to do different things with it. And you don't have to worry about trying to plug into a motorcycle. But the ups and downs of that class is that if the battery runs out of juice, goes back to what you were talking about, you know, you're out of juice. There's nothing, you know, you're not going to be heated. You're sitting there shivering. So if, you, if you're sitting there watching the game or something like that, and it's cold and you're nice and totesy, the battery goes dead. You're, yeah, you're kind of walking back to the right. car. And if you're riding, it's even obviously a lot worse, sure. right? But people choose, sometimes they'll buy an, well, not sometimes, they buy an extra battery a lot and they put it in their tank bag or somewhere in the motorcycle. And if for some reason it goes, they have a fresh battery because batteries aren't really all that expensive. Mm-hmm. But it gives you more options because those types of uh, wearables or lifestyle components are available. So many different configurations from base layers, like, you know, which is close to your skin. Um, vests, uh, like a soft shell vest, soft shell jackets. They do all sorts of different styles of uh, heated socks. Heated socks are wonderful. Um, they actually, you know, and battery life on this type of product in its middle setting, which is where you'd run it the majority of the time is anywhere between four and five hours. And on a sock, it's actually could even be a little bit longer and you can control the heat from a sock from a key fob and same thing with insoles. So the two different classes or the way I classify it is wired in the motorcycle, consistent heat, bigger panels. So you're going to get more heat and, um, and you know, you're set. Uh, the disadvantage in that scenario is you're wired to a motorcycle. You got to unplug something. You have the, you know, oh my gosh, I got to unplug my gloves from the end of my sleeves and I got to unplug from the motorcycle, right? Mm-hmm. But it's consistent. No matter what, it's consistent. Um, and the panels are bigger. It gives more heat off. It's more, you know, it's, it's warmer by far. But the second class, we see an awful lot of sales um, that people like to buy that product because they do multiple things or they don't ride as long. If they're commuting an hour, a set of, re- you know, gloves with um, battery technology is just fine. You know, no problem at all, you know, so the good thing in today's world, we have more options available to us as far as heating is con- uh, concerned than we ever have had. And they, it only develops to have more parts of it. Um, so there's really no, you know, if a person wants to stay warm, there's no reason they can't be. With the battery, it would be easy. If you, you mentioned a lot of people buy a second battery, if you have a second battery, you could just plug it in in your tank bag to charge while you're, uh, you're using your other battery. Uh, they actually need it like a plug into a socket, like in your house. Oh, it's only 110 volt or 120 volt you got it. charging. Oh, I see. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They, the, the, the converters aren't there quite yet, but they will be, I know they will be at some point in time. Right. Okay. So that, limits but a battery it. retails for thirty nine ninety five. If you leave it on a, 
charger at home, you're fully charged in less than two hours. Sure. But if you're on a multi-day trip or something, that's obviously not the one that you want. No, um, multi-day trip, you totally want to take a heated uh, jacket liner is what I would recommend because the sleeves have heat through them. The neck has heat in it, uh, two panels in your chest and one in your back, but it allows the options to plug in gloves to the end of the sleeves. And there again, you eliminate your heated grips, to be honest with you. And, and I've ridden both ways with heated grips or with heated gloves. You know, if it's slightly mildly cold and heated grips are fine, no problem. But if it gets super cold, let me tell you, you're going to want an enclosed heated glove that's plugged in with a continuous source of heat. Mm-hmm. It just keeps the heat radiated inside of the glove and keeps your hem completely warm. And honestly, to me... That's probably the first important thing. And then the second most important thing is going to be, you know, the core of your body. So, um, okay, what, what do you mean the, the core of your body? Talk about that. The core of your body is going to be your chest, your back, where your heart and your major organs are located. And, um, you know, everything kind of, you know, if that part of your body stays warm, then you're, you know, it's, uh, it takes a lot of the worry away and keeps you where you need to be. Yeah. And when your core starts to shut down, what, what happens with your bodies? It shuts down your extremities, isn't it? You know, your, your, your hands all of a sudden then, get colder, your feet get colder, the whole bit. So you it, can't uh, operate, you right. can't operate your, you know, your, you know, everything for me is operating the controls of your motorcycle and keeping alert. When, um, when you're talking about the panels that are inside these, are, are we talking like just resistive elements? They're, they're just, um, can you talk about what that's made of? Yeah, well, you know, a lot of them will have what they call their secret sauce. They don't want to really give out what's in them, but most of them are a very small micro wire panel that are conductive. The most important thing in a panel is the back of the panel. And what I say that is where the heat is radiating radiating into your body, um, that's, you know, you need that to happen. But the back of the panel is where you can lose a lot of heat if it's not done right with reflective type materials that they might use. Well, they don't might, they do use it. Uh, everybody kind of has their own name for it. Um, but if you lose too much heat out of the back of the panel or toward the front of the jacket, what happens is um, you don't ever keep the heat into the body. And then it uh, reduces the amount you get and it reduces like on wearables, it reduces the amount of time you can get out of a battery, rechargeable battery. But they're very small. The most important thing to know about heated gear is um, you know, Gerbing, for example, is a microwire technology, probably the best at it, that you don't feel their panels at all. And so it's so thin and so smooth to the touch, and there's no hot spots. It's pretty consistent throughout the whole panel that um, you don't know it's there. Um, other companies that maybe don't spend as much attention to detail, you run into where um, the wires you might feel a little more. Not that that's bad, you're still getting heat. But, you know, there's all different levels of this, but it's all micro wire technology, very small, sewn into panels that reflect into the body. And like I said, the most important thing is to the back panels. We've spent a lot of time in developing, making sure you measure how much heat is coming out of the front and how much is coming out of the back. And, you know, if, if it's 50% or more is coming out the back, you've done something wrong. You've got to figure out how to make the panel better. Is there a way to tell uh, how uh, well one is made or well, well one is designed or is there a rating system for them? Uh, there's not so much a rating system. I think a couple of things that you can think of is um, how long has the company been doing it? Um, you know, number one. And number two, do they back their panels with a lifetime warranty? Um, lifetime warranty is everything. Uh, if you're buying a set of heated gear, it says that, you know, we're proven. Um there isn't a rating system. 
it's looking at reviews and what, you know, writers have tend to uh, migrate toward, or they might have their opinion of something. I think the other thing too, is how much versatility does a garment have with it? I know some companies will just put um, one controller or maybe two and they'll say, okay, here's my heated gear and you, this runs your gloves and this runs your jacket and this runs your pants. And it's just a certain style that sits on a belt, you know, or sits on your thigh or something to operate it. Companies are serious about this, give you several options to control your heat. And they do it several different ways. Probably um, the most effective way I've seen um, Gerbing do, you've heard me mention that before, they've actually been the company that's been doing it since the mid-70s, um, is they offer a, uh, a controller that operates your, you know, your gloves and your jacket liner. But they also give you the option to have a remote temperature controller that you can put anywhere in your motorcycle. And so the cool thing about that is, like for myself, I run it between my handlebars. It's easy to get to. You know, the last thing you want to do is struggle to find knobs to control your heat, right? Mm -hmm. So they make it easy for you. There's also Bluetooth controllers now that people like, you know, like to operate things from your cell phone. The only disadvantage there is if your phone's not charged, you can't really run the heat from your phone. Oh, there's no other way to do it. There's no manual. Well, override. there's a there's a fail safe, but it becomes a lot harder. Oh, I see. Um, but you know, Bluetooth is still out there. Some younger generations do choose to go that way. But you know, the remote setup is really nice. There's also, um, you know, there's variation of different controllers that you can use. To me, that makes a company what it needs to be is to give. You know, heated gear isn't just black and white. Heated gear is getting the right setup for you. And then finding the right controllers that work for you, because some people like some controllers over other controllers and whatever you choose to do it, it is all about safety. Because if you're going to adjust your control of your temperature while you're riding, you know, you're going to take one hand off the bar or, you, you know, you're going to have to find a controller to put close to the handlebars mm -hmm. in order to adjust it properly while you're riding. So not just about fit and, and style, it's about the controller itself. Absolutely. The heated gear. Okay. So what, what about power? Like if I go to buy a heater, for instance, you know, I could buy a 500 watt or a thousand watt heater and it gives me an idea of the amount of heat that it puts out. Do they do that with heated gear? Uh, yeah, absolutely. They'll have a rating. They're almost all the same. 130 is usually your top setting and it works its way down. And depending on this, depending on this heating selection that you choose. Um, so it does have a rating per what each, um, what high does, what the next level does down. That would be more for like your, your battery um, operated products, or your lifestyle products I was talking about. They'll generally have three or four different settings. Mm -hmm. They're set settings. They're 130 degrees at the top. They're 112, like 97.5. And they kind of work their way, you know, one more beyond that. With any of the plug-in styles, it's like a rheostat, kind of like a thermostat, I guess, in a house or you know, you have the option to start at a very high temperature and do small increments to find the exact temperature you want to be at. So it's a little different that way with the plug-in style that plugs into your battery. But as far as wattage goes, you know, I think you said 130 watt there. You meant 130 degrees is usually the highest setting, correct? I did. I'm sorry. Yeah. I did. 100% I meant that. Right. So 130 degrees. But, but as far as wattage goes, so are they all pretty much the same? They all put out the same kind of power or are some, you know, rated at this one puts out, you know, 200 watts sort of thing, or this one uses, you no, know. No, they're, they're all very um, similar in that aspect of it. It's the two things that will make the difference is the panels, the transfer of heat, like I was talking about. They can all be rated at you know, 130 degree, but are you truly getting that? Are you truly getting the majority of that heat? 
like oh, I was saying. Oh, I see. So panel. it could be going at the back, like you said. Right. Exactly. It could be escaping. So it's, you know, you got to remember we're out in the elements, right? So if any heat's escaping, it's not a good thing. And, um, but no, they're all rated very similarly, similar that way. Able come down to the panel technology, you know, are they retaining that heat? Um, you know, how well are those panels made? How well is the gear made, you know? And, um, you know, to kind of work itself from there. What about the power that it's going to draw from the motorcycle? Is there some calculations that you have to do to make sure that your motorcycle has enough power? Well, any 12 volt system, they, they, they draw well below what is acceptable. They'll draw, you know, less than what a heat set of grips would. But the key to it is, um, depending on how many pieces you're plugging in, depends on what kind of, a, you need a fail safe in any system, right? Um, you know, some companies will provide uh, a wiring harness with a fuse set with an illustration um, to saying, if you're running just a jacket liner and gloves, you put this fuse in. If you're, you know, running gloves, jacket, pants, insoles, you need to put obviously a lot, you know, it's going to draw more. You put a higher fuse in, but they're all safe for your 12 volt system. They all draw below what would be acceptable. So almost so should, any modern bike is going to power them. No problem at all. Absolutely. Any modern bike that has a modern 12 volt system um, is no issue at all. So if somebody's going in to look to, to buy heated gear, can you sort of walk through a process like uh, how, how you would tell someone to search for heated gear? We have an awful lot of new riders too. So in this industry, so it's really important. Um, number one, know your riding. That's the first thing I think is a question that needs to be asked by either a dealer or a person that's going to purchase. I think if you're going to purchase heated gear, number one, no type of riding you do. Am I a rider that commutes? Am I a rider that, you know, I get to go on two good trips a year? <laughs> you know, <laughs> is that what I do? Uh, do I do a little commuting and I do some long trips? Um, know your riding. Number one, knowing what you, how you want to ride, how you want to use the gear uh, is the first step of it all. If you're a guy that is doing longer trips or, or you're going on long trips or plan to go on long trips, but you also do some commuting, it's no problem. Go for the stuff that's wired to your motorcycle. That's a better fit for you. If you're just an occasional rider and it might get cold and when it gets cold, you want to stay warm, but you're not, you know, the all day or two day or three day or go ride for the whole weekend kind of guy or girl, then, um, then the wearable technology or rechargeable battery technology is a better fit for you. Um, so I would almost classify that. Then it's going to come down to what kind of motorcycle gear am I wearing? We don't see as many people wear leather today as textiles because textiles has become so versatile of what it can do for a rider. So most people are in textiles. You know, it's try it on. Put your jacket over top of it so you understand how it feels with the jacket over top of it with it zipped up. Put a set of gloves on if you're doing plug-in. Put the plug-in gloves on so you understand what you have to do to make that work. Wearables are a little bit easier because they're usually a little thinner technology anyway like uh, soft shell technology or base layers. Um, socks are pretty self-explanatory. Do you wear motorcycle pants? You know, I think everybody should, but we have a lot of people that wear protective jeans. Now, if you're wearing a protective jean, a 12 volt um, hardwired to the bike liner may not fit as nice under a set of jeans as it's going to under a textile pant. That gives you a little more room. Um, you got to know your riding and you got to know your gear. If you're a rider, once you know these things, it can help you figure out what class 
that you probably want to start to look in. And the biggest thing of all, what is your threshold of cold? It'll always come down to that. What is your threshold of cold? Even if it's a short trip and you get cold easy, well, you may want something that's plugged in with the bigger panels. If you don't get cold as easy, but you want something to get the chill off of you, then you want to go the other direction. If your hands just get cold and you're commuting, well, a set of gloves with rechargeable battery technology might be better because you can use it for multiple things. So mix and match sort of thing. So, so the questions you're, you're, you're asking right now are really helping you decide whether you're looking at a wired system or a battery system. You got it. Rechargeable battery. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Or a wired to the bike, which comes from your battery. Right. So, and, and part of it would be whether it has plugs, like in, in other words, if you're planning on getting gloves, you want to make sure that it's actually wired for, for gloves then I assume. Yes. Well, anything that's 12 volt will have the connectors that come out of the end of the sleeves to hook gloves into. Now that's your 12 volt. Your, your other technology um, is going to be, which I didn't clarify, is going to be 7 volt or, or 5 volt technology. Panels are smaller. It still accomplishes a heat, but not as consistent or as large as a 12 volt system would be oh, or see. gear would be. Mm-hmm. So they are running, you know, there's very few hybrid products that will be 12 volt plug-in and 12 volt um, gloves, the battery pack, because the battery pack would be way too big. That's, you know, way too big. Mm-hmm. So to keep a small lithium ion battery that's not encumbrancesome in the actual um, glove itself up in the cuff, they'll use 5-volt or 7-volt rechargeable batteries that are small, you know, very small. Um, they're curved, um, but they don't quite pack the same punch as a 12-volt, but they're comfortable and they don't cause a problem and they achieve a similar outcome. So obviously, um, weather-wise as well. I mean, the, the, if you're riding colder stuff, you want the plug-in 12-volt. Absolutely. Is there anything else you think we should know about heated gear? Uh, just buy some. It'll, it'll make your life better. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, thank you very much. I really appreciate your time. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. Thank you, Jim. I appreciate being over the opportunity to come on and talk with you. That was Joe Parr from his office in Dallas, Texas. Now we're going to take a quick break while I I got a couple of things to tell you about, but then we're going to get an answer to the question I posed at the beginning of this episode. What should we be wearing under our outer gear, jacket and pants? And do the layers underneath affect the efficacy of those garments that we're wearing as outerwear? Stay with us. Now, if you're considering soft luggage, you have to consider Giant Loop. They're inspired by many years of personal riding experience and feedback gathered from riders across the globe. Giant Loop designs products for travel, discovery, and exploration. They believe in lighter, simpler designs. And what they say is how and where we ride should not be dictated by what's strapped on our vehicle. Riding is just plain more fun when unnecessary bulk and weight are removed. And That's how they design their luggage. They eliminate elements, focusing on what's needed to serve a product's mission. No extra straps or buckles. No everything in the kitchen sink designs. Instead, each product is purpose-built to enhance the riding experience for those who want a modular, customizable packing system that's durable, stable, intuitive, and lightweight. Go light, go fast, go far with Giant Loop. 
GiantLoopMoto.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. GiantLoopMoto.com. Well, if you're the type of rider that stands up on your foot pegs, you're going to get what I'm saying immediately. But even if you don't stand or don't stand all that much, you still understand that foot pegs are about connection and comfort. Applying pressure to one peg or the other uh, helps steer your bike, of course. And when standing, your feet need to remain connected to those foot pegs. And when seated, a wider foot peg means a more comfortable ride, more comfortable than the narrow one. Bottom line is you won't go wrong with a wider foot peg unless you don't choose high quality foot pegs. This is one area you do not want to skimp in. IMS Products has been making parts for motorcyclists since 1976, and they've always been run by riders just like us. I've run IMS foot pegs for years and find them indestructible. I've smashed them on rocks, dropped them in every kind of dirt and stone, and they always perform flawlessly for me. I can count on them. I don't even have to think about them. But the other thing with IMS Products is the warranty. Their warranty for their full line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs is for life. And they're built in the USA. You won't be disappointed. IMSproducts.com is the website. Anytime you're talking to them, dealing with them anyway, mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. Okay, so now to answer those crucial questions. What should we be wearing under our outer gear, jackets and pants? And does those underlayers affect the efficacy of those garments? So we went straight to two manufacturers and asked them for clarification. The first one is Climb. Climb manufactures all kinds of motorcycle riding apparel and other things. My name is Lucas Eddy. I'm the communications manager at Climb. And I'm from Michigan originally, and I moved out to Idaho to work for Climb about three, three and a half years ago. Lucas, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Great. Thank you. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for having me. So are you a bike rider as well? I am. Yeah, I ride primarily dirt bikes, um, you know, trail riding, single track. But once in a while, I do get on an adventure bike and a touring bike and that kind of stuff too. Okay. So um, I, I want to talk about um, the the design of a jacket and without getting into some, you know, real technical parts of it. Basically what I'm saying here is, is that when a rider buys a helmet, the helmet comes out of the box, ready to plunk onto their head. And as long as you do it up your chin strap, you can enjoy the maximum level of protection the helmet has to offer. There's certain, no mystery there. There's nothing that you can really change. The helmet really comes as a, as a final piece of wearable gear. Yet when we look at uh, purchasing a jacket or pants, Jackets and pants don't seem to come with instructions on what the rider should wear under them. And of course, they can range all the way from someone wearing shorts and a t-shirt on up to wearing maybe some tough jeans, maybe multiple layers if, if it's colder weather again. But um, one could argue that those additional layers, and in particular, if they're abrasion uh, resistant material, like a tough set of jeans, they add to the abrasion protection and even some impact protection that you get from the garment itself on the outside. So the question here is, when jackets are designed and tested, what clothing is assumed to be worn underneath? What is the minimum clothing layers that the jackets are designed to have underneath them? Yeah, that's a great question, Jim. So the short answer is there is no assumed minimum layer of clothing to be worn underneath the jacket. When we, when we come into two different answers uh, to this question, one being 
how we as apparel designers and developers look at the jacket or the garments. And then also the other part is looking at how the CE regulating body in Europe looks at certifying impact and abrasion protection in a jacket. So with both of these cases, we don't look at a piece of outerwear, a piece of motorcycle outerwear, and assume someone will be wearing a certain brand of jeans and a certain brand of underwear underneath that clothing. So we can't make that assumption. There are too many factors. So we can't necessarily give instructions to riders to wear certain underlayers beneath these jackets or not to wear certain other underlayers beneath these jackets. So because of this though, so that I guess that could be good in a way, and it probably, that's what you're going to say is, is that it is good because then you're designing these jackets to be worn on their own, basically, without anything underneath. Effectively, yes. And that's why you see the moisture wicking liners inside of the jackets and you see the pad pockets being made with a certain material. So if someone really wanted to, yes, they could wear this these garments against their skin. Now, I don't think anybody does that. You'd at least have underwear and some kind of a t-shirt or a base layer to make everything work even better and to be more comfortable. But yes, these these are moisture wicking fabrics. They're designed to be against the skin. And we don't assume that there's an additional layer on top of that um, when, it, when it comes to protection. Does Climb do all of the designing of the jackets, for, like right from concept to final product? Yes. Yeah, so that's all. That's all in-house. It's all in-house. So, so you have a designer comes up with a, you know, well, you tell me, how, do, how does it work from start to finish, roughly? Yeah, so, yeah good question. So, so you basically have pods, which is a developer, a designer, and a PLM, a product line manager. Um, and they'll all work together. Um, and then there's the design director as well, who comes in, the director of design and innovation. Um, and everybody works together under consultation from leaders and then also with with uh, working together with each other um, to come up with what we end up with, with the designs and how things work and how zippers are placed, what types of zippers are used and all of that. Um, so there's a degree of, of built-in knowledge that comes with people spending years at the company. Like they know what works and what doesn't work sort of thing. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have different pods, different groups of people for each product, basically. That's just how we distribute the workload effectively. And then what, what, how it begins to try to answer your question is we get a, a brief from the product line manager who sees an opportunity in the market or who sees a need to, to redesign an existing product. And then this is passed along to the pod, to the team, uh, to work together and, and follow this brief to redesign or make a new product that fits this, this requirement. And what sort of considerations go into the design of the product? I mean, are those people that are looking after that pod that's looking after the design, are they taking into account the placement of certain materials for safety factors, or is it a design for look and, and for function at that point and then go on from there? It's, it's basically all of the above at once. And without trying to answer this question in too many pieces all at once, um, which maybe I can get to this later, but we have some pretty good data on crash testing and real life crashes that have happened um, with gear that's been sent back to us. So we kind of know where the more durable pieces of fabric need to be placed. We kind of know generally where the vents are supposed to be. Um, So we're not really trying to reinvent the wheel necessarily. We're trying to improve and adjust and constantly refine things. Um, So we do, that's a long way of answering your question, but we do have um, kind of a built-in program of where these materials have to be and how they should be laid out and how the pad pockets need to be and which armor we'll use and so forth. And then when you get the final product done, you, you mentioned CE testing. Is that what you do? Are all the jackets CE tested? Um, the jackets that 
that need to be CE tested, yes, they are. So there are some some products on like the off-road side that are jackets that you can wear on the street. Um, but for a variety of reasons, we end up not CE testing them. But everything that is designed for street use, so that's adventure and touring products and street products, basically, those are all, all CE tested to a certain level. Can you talk about the CE testing? Yes. Um, it's, it, it is ultimately expensive for companies to do this uh, because there are, let's say, four levels that most of our motorcycle apparel is going to reach, which is level B, level A, level AA, and AAA. Um, and as the as the letters get higher, meaning more A's, um, that level of protection is higher. And there are different speed requirements. And by speed, I mean the speed of an abrasive surface against that part of the jacket. There are different speed requirements for different zones on these garments. So like the knees, the hips, the seat, the inner leg, the armpit, the crotch area, those all have different speeds of abrasion at those different um, A ratings, basically. And um, what you do when you go for CE... A certification, you choose which level we want to certify at. So let's say we want to certify for level double A. We would choose to certify for double A. We send the product in in basically production ready fashion and it gets tested. If it doesn't pass double A, that doesn't mean it gets A. We actually have to resubmit and go through again to get A. Or let's say it passes A and we're aiming for A, it doesn't get automatically moved to double A. Oh, so they just don't move. recertify. Why yeah. do they do that? I don't know. <laughs> that's just the way they choose to do it. Maybe that's to get you to spend more money to send it back again. No, I won't go there. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, I'm sure. But okay. Sure so there's you, a lot you of aim, political reasons. You aim yeah. for a target and, and you have to hit it. And if you don't, then you end up going back to the redesign process, which I imagine is, is rather expensive. So would you overshoot all the time? I mean, would you go in already knowing that you like fully expecting it to come out as a pass? Um, sometimes yes, sometimes no. So there have been cases where we make something um, like jeans, for example, and we just aim for the double A because that's a good standard to hit for most motorcycle products. So, okay, we'll aim for A, sorry, double A, and they pass double A. In many cases, if there's not enough time or we don't, or we're not able to spend that money to send it back in for recertification for triple A, even though we think it could have passed triple A, that sometimes doesn't happen. Um, so you'll see that with some products that are rated double A and we just talk about, talk about them as being double A, but behind the scenes, we know they might have actually passed AAA. And the same thing going the other direction. We have some products like um, like a Kodiak jacket, a new one that's been redesigned. It used to be AA, and now it's actually moved down to an A. And consumers are confused by this. And it was actually a conscious decision on our part to use some stretch fabrics in the armpit area um, to give some more comfort, to reduce the bulk, to make it more flexible. But unfortunately, in the testing phase, that, that meant that it brought, brought it down to an A level because... One little piece of that fabric on a certain abrasion zone, according to the CE testing, didn't pass double A levels. So at that point, we just have to make that that sacrifice on paper, basically, because the rest of the jacket is unchanged. So as a rider, what should I be looking at for protection? Yeah, good question. So one thing that makes that even harder to answer is just because something has an A rating doesn't mean that it's not really, really close to a double A or really, really close to not passing an A. And same thing for double A. Maybe it's at the very bottom level of double A, and it's really close to being a triple A, but it just isn't. Mm. So there's a large there's a large margin, so to speak, with each one. And that's where it comes down to your preferences. If you're willing to trust the manufacturer to say something is very durable and, and to look at their reputation and see, okay, this A product might be fine, 
um, and you look at the materials and everything else, it's at, at, at some point it does become up to the writer to choose and, and make a judgment call if, if it's that important to them. Let me jump back to the uh, the ratings again. So let's just pick a double A rating. If there was something, if there was a, a pair of uh, adventure pants that were double A rating and a pair of jeans that were double A rating, would I get the same protection from the both of those? Mm, probably not. No. If, because, how do I, how should I put this? So the jean, let's assume the jean is just one sheet of material and the whole jean from the ankle up to the waist would pass the requirements for the most intense zone of abrasion to meet double A, then you would be comparing that to the adventure pants, which might have specific zones set to meet those zones for double A and other lighter zones like the crotch area and maybe, maybe the upper, upper hip area or something else like that uh, would be a lighter fabric where the abrasion requirements for that specific zone is lower. So it's more optimized for where we have the more heavy duty fabrics. So no, technically you might not get the exact same abrasion protection between those two garments. So the jeans would give you more possibly? We can't necessarily say more. We could say more complete coverage in terms of abrasion protection, but there, there are so many factors that go into it. I would struggle to put it so concretely. Right. Okay. So these different panels that you're sewing in though, what's the purpose of doing that? is to make sure that we get the the best performance, whatever section of the garment requires that, requires that the best performance in those areas. So you might think inside the knee we have leather for grip, and then maybe further down we would have a different material for heat protection against the header of a dirt bike that might be really hot or of an adventure bike where the engine's getting hot. And then down at the very bottom of the cuff, we would have a fabric that's going to hold up well to some light wear and tear that happens over and over again next to your boots. And then in the crotch, we could have a light stretch fabric. And then in the knees and in the seat, we would have a more durable fabric because you're going to be sitting down a lot, kneeling. And if you're crashing, that's what's going to be getting braided as well. So every part of the garments is kind of has its purpose. And we try to fulfill that with, with different materials. That's incredible. That's a, that's a lot of planning and, and a lot of thinking going into it. I mean, it can't be less expensive to do all the separate panels than it would be to just sew up a single piece. No, absolutely not. It's... It gets extremely expensive, especially when you start looking at really minute details, like the types of threads that we use for stitching. So the types of threads we use for stitching, for example, don't have as much natural lubricity as other threads. And what that means is the sewing time is slower. So it takes factories longer to sew that thread with a needle through the fabric, right? So then all of a sudden your cost of that production increases by just a little bit. Same thing with certain fabrics like the super fabric we use, uh, which has those ceramic dots that will dull needles more often, right? So as you sew through a, through that fabric, it dulls the needle and it slows it down. You have to stop, replace the needle more often. So all these small little things kind of do add up. You're exactly right. And becomes far more expensive when you do that. So how does a rider know good pants from not so good pants or jacket? They would look if, if I were a customer, from the customer's standpoint, I would look at a few things. I would look at the reputation of a brand. I would look at the known ingredients that go into it. Like we know which brands make good products, right? Like there's Cordura, there's 3M, there's Cortex, Superfabric, Velcro, like all the, all the reputable brands, right? So we would look at those and see, okay, this brand has a good reputation. 
they're using ingredients that I'm familiar with and I seem to trust. And then we look at their marketing. How do they say I should be using this product? What's it going to do for me? And then finally we go and we see, does it fit? Do I like the way it looks? Does it feel good? Do I feel comfortable wearing this and so forth? Do you have a, um, a rating that you would say would be applicable to people riding an adventure motorcycle as opposed to somebody who's riding a street bike? Uh, what do you mean by a rating? Uh, like the, the CE rating. So in other words, would a, you know, a street rider look at one and, and an adventure rider look at another? Oh, I see. Um, I, I don't think we can say that there would be a difference between different types of riders. Um, we typically do see a lot of products being that double A rating. Um, there's a lot of things like all the way from jeans to some really heavy duty adventure gear that falls within that double A rating. And there are some outliers in the A category or B, which is just for shells without armor. Um, and then that triple A category as well is kind of the, kind of the unicorn category. As you move from B up to triple A, obviously it's going to get more expensive. So with the level of protection increasing, is it just a matter of how much money you want to spend for more protection? Effectively, yes. Yeah, if you if you want to pay more and more money, you can get into more protection. Um, and then at the same time, if you want to have more uh, physical penalties, so to speak, like more comfort penalties, you can get into really big protection. Like think track racing leather suits. They're not mobile. They're not going to be very comfortable to wear in anything besides that sport bike position, but they have the triple A rating. See what I mean? Oh, I see what you're saying. So you, that's what you're giving up. You may be giving up mobility with that with that style. Or as right. you increase your, your um, level of protection. Typically, yes. There are some exceptions, but you're right. Yeah, so you don't see AAA on the street much? Not very much. There are a few AAA garments, um, and I'm, hope, I'm hoping I'm not plugging too much climb here, um, but that is one thing that we've done that we are proud of, um, which is the Badlands Pro A3, which does get that AAA rating. It's kind of an elusive rating for um, comfortable street motorcycle wear or adventure motorcycle wear, you know, with Gore-Tex and, and Superfabric and all the regular, regular ingredients. Um, but then it does meet that AAA rating. We did it kind of in a, in a limited production run. So I think it's out of stock at the time we're recording this. So that's, that's the, the top protection, the most you can get. That's the same as, yes. a, as a leather race suit. Again, back to the, back to the jeans versus adventure pants question. Is it more, is it the same? Mm, let's, we, we probably can say it's not going to be as completely protective as a leather tracksuit, but it still meets that CE requirement. So it's possible that if there were a quadruple A rating, that maybe those uh, leather track racing suits would be closer to the quadruple A and that our, our product would be closer to that triple A rating. You see what I mean? Right. Yeah. And, and just to be fair that uh, um, th because the way you're the answering the question, you're, you're being careful about what you're saying. The reason is there's so many variables, isn't there? I mean, I, I think anybody who rides a motorcycle probably understands this already, but there's so many variables in a get-off. There's, there's so many things to consider. Yes, absolutely. You're absolutely right. We have what's called the gear protection guarantee where we will we'll replace a rider's um, jacket or pants or certain helmets um, if they've crashed in them on, on the street and they have a police report to show they're not doing anything irresponsible. So if they crash in those garments, they can reach out to us and we'll, we'll get that product from them and we'll replace it for free. And what we do with that is we actually look at those crashed pieces and collect data off of them, like how they crashed, what speed, what surface, what happened. Um, and we've, and we've developed, um, kind of a data set based on that. 
And what we see there is exactly what you're talking about, that huge difference in variables where there might be a jacket that was crashed at 30 miles an hour and it looks like a nightmare. And then we have another jacket that was crashed at 75 and it really doesn't look that bad. So even within those crashes within the same product, there can be so much variation. What about the um, the air vests now? Are, uh, are you getting jackets back that have been in get-offs with the air vests? And how does that affect the damage on the jacket? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure how that affects the j- damage on the jacket exactly. But it's funny you ask that because we did just have someone reach out um, who did just like literally days ago crash in an airbag vest and, and one of our jackets. Um, and he was he was fine, but he wanted to reach out to us to let us know that it had happened. Um, so unfortunately I can't answer that. I don't know how exactly it changes the damage to the jacket when that happens. I can't believe that you're giving people a free jacket basically <laughs> if they've crashed. I mean, that's, that's pretty amazing, but I do understand you're collecting data, but still a part of it, I guess, is, um, uh, a bit of a customer uh, relation thing. Yeah. Yeah. We want to, we want to help them out. I mean, they just had a bad experience and their motorcycles probably totaled and, and their gear is wrecked. You know, the least we can do is say, Hey, if, if everything lines up, you know, if all the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted, okay, let's, let's replace your jacket for you. Lucas, that, that's great. Thank you very much. Yeah, you bet. Thanks, Jim. Appreciate it. We're speaking with Lucas Eddy, communications manager from Climb, from Climb's head office in Idaho. Now, we also contacted Andy Goldfine. Andy's the founder and CEO of Aerostitch. Aerostitch is well-respected for the robust line of rider gear. And Andy invented the first textile armored riding suit called the Roadcrafter in the early 80s and was one of the early leaders in motorcycle safety clothing. Now, I asked Andy what the bare minimum was for clothing to be worn underneath Aerostitch riding apparel. And here's what he said. Quote, the minimum we recommend wearing under an Aerostitch riding suit, Darien, R3, Cousin Jeremy, all of them, is a t-shirt and shorts, unquote. He goes on to say that all Aerostitch gear is deliberately designed to be as lightweight as possible to improve rider comfort, but also be sacrificial in crash situations. Now, Aerostitch offers a service to repair their jackets, uh, which is difficult to find nowadays. But through that, Andy says they get to study crash damage gear when it comes in for repair. And he sees it as broken down into two categories. One, areas that were loaded and dragged on the pavement, and two, areas that weren't damaged. So it makes it pretty obvious. The areas which were usually under load were the elbows, shoulders, hips, and knees. And uh, Andy says... Um, In our gear, all these places are reinforced with multiple layers and abrasion-resistant fabric. And beneath the fabric, there's additional layers of material associated with the impact armor. And I think this this is the real kicker here. He says that, and I quote again, We've never seen crash abrasion wear penetrate through all of those, usually five or six, layers, unquote. That's pretty amazing. So to recap... Andy Goldfine of Aerostitch says their suits are designed for a minimum of t-shirt and shorts, which basically tells you the suit is supposed to handle it all. The extra layers, the armor, is designed to protect you the best they can. And by the way, Aerostitch does have an owner's manual with each garment that does talk about what you should wear as a minimum underneath. In fact, my Darien jacket has a a tag in it that states, we recommend always wearing long-sleeve pants or shirts underneath, something along those lines. 
And Andy also recommends, and this might be out there for some of us, but for riders who frequently ride in the three-digit speeds, it's like 120 to 160 mile per hour. That works out to 190 to 260 kilometers an hour should wear race leathers. I don't know what you'd be riding that fast for on the street. Now, by the way, I've had two minor get-offs, probably around uh, anywhere from 40 to 60 kilometers an hour, wearing my Aerostitch Darien jacket and 81 pants. And honestly, I was shocked that there was no damage other than a slight scuff on the 81 pants. Both of those slides were on asphalt with uh, bits of gravel and sand on them. So modern gear is, is quite impressive. Now, one note, if you wear shorts or thin outdoor pants under your riding suit, um, for instance, if you bump your shin on, say, your foot peg or something, that material between your shin and the peg is just likely one layer. There's not very much there. So you're going to feel it a lot more than if you had multiple layers underneath. So added layers will slightly add some sort of impact absorption, at least at low speeds. Another consideration pointed out by Aerostitch is that an added layer provides a thermal barrier should you slide because textiles, when they slide down the road, they're going to build up heat from the friction between the textile and the asphalt or whatever it is you're sliding on. And that could be transferred to your skin unless there's a layer or, or more between it. That's where those added layers can help insulate you from that. It's just something to consider. So now you can layer down in warm weather and layer up in cold weather and feel confident your suit, if properly made, will protect you as it's designed to do. And if bulking up in cold weather doesn't suit you, doesn't fit under your jacket, maybe you've got a tighter fitting jacket or pants, then heated gear. That will be your, your next step. And that feels so good when it's cold out. Hey, I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and to you, the listener. Thank you very much for listening. Now, if you're not doing it already, we need your support. The show is built on a model of advertising and listener support, and don't sit back and think that other people will do it, because quite frankly... There's a lot of people that listen to the show every week, and it's only a very small percentage of people who actually support the show. Have a look at our website, adventureriderradio.com. Click on support and see what we've got there. Anyway, time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you very much for listening. I'll talk to you next week. Hi, this is Justin Kleider. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Ah!